This is MIT Technology Review. Far above our heads, a couple thousand satellites circle the planet, helping us do things like communicate, navigate, and forecast the weather. It took decades to put that many satellites into the sky, but soon they'll be joined by thousands more. It could turn the orbits closest to Earth into something like a freeway at rush hour. We all thought the ocean was big, right? You just throw your bottles in there, who cares? But it's not big, and all these environments play on each other and affect each other. And you think about space, it's sort of big, but the objects are moving at 17,000 miles an hour. That's a lot of coverage every second. At that speed, there's no such thing as a fender bender. One collision could generate a catastrophic volume of space debris. If everybody does whatever they want with the night sky, then at some point you're, you're going to have satellite collisions that make uh, low Earth orbit basically unusable. It could take many billions of dollars and many decades, seriously, until low Earth orbit is usable again. The new generation of satellites could help us accomplish all sorts of goals, like internet connectivity for everyone on the planet. The problem is there aren't any traffic cops up there to set and enforce the rules of the road. We talked with experts about how space companies are dealing with the lack of regulation and what could happen if the congestion in low Earth orbit gets out of hand. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Deep Tech. It won't be long before Earth is blanketed in a cloud of new satellites. While that brings new risks, it should also bring some huge benefits, including providing new services like broader wireless internet connectivity and nearly continuous mapping of the Earth's surface. That's why the editors of MIT Technology Review decided to put satellite mega-constellations on this year's list of 10 breakthrough technologies. And to write about that development, the magazine turned to a San Diego-based science writer and former astrophysicist. Ramin Skiba. So, Ramin, tell us what a satellite mega constellation is. Right. So, a satellite mega constellation is, it's not like a constellation of stars, like Ursa Major or whatever, but it is like a constellation in the sense that they are associated with each other. So, you could have, you know, just a couple of satellites, or you could have dozens or hundreds or, you know, even thousands um, all coordinating with each other. How many conventional satellites are there in orbit, and how many more are coming? How many of these constellations exist yet? So just to give uh, ballpark numbers, there are a couple thousand satellites in the sky, but we're talking about not just thousands, but really tens of thousands of more satellites coming up soon. And so there's, there's a couple of major players involved, like SpaceX, Planet Labs, and OneWeb. Those are the, the three biggest. And of course, NASA and the European Space Agency and other space agencies are also um, working on these satellite constellations. According to Ramin, what's enabling all this is a combination of engineering advances, such as smaller electronics and a new generation of ion thrusters that use tiny amounts of fuel. And so you, you can do in you know a shoebox-sized satellite what you would have needed you know a suitcase-sized one before to do. So and, and that matters because it's cheaper to make and cheaper to launch. Now you can fit say dozens of these satellites onto a single rocket. One promise of these new satellite constellations is that they'll help bring internet access to the 3.5 billion people who still don't have it. But no one's really regulating this revolution. And no one's forcing the companies to come up with a way to work together to make sure their satellites won't collide in orbit. On top of that, nations such as China, Russia, India, and the US 
have all tested missiles designed to blow satellites to smithereens. I mean, the movie Gravity with, with Sandra Bullock really, you know, brought it home for some people. Houston update. Well, we have a full-on chain reaction. It's been confirmed that it's the unintentional side effect of the Russians striking one of their own satellites. They shot down their own satellite. Right at disposal. Most likely a spy sat gone bad. Out shrapnel. Debris chain reaction is out of control and rapidly expanding. Multiple satellites are down and they keep on falling. Ramin says some aspects of the film were very realistic. In 2007, China actually destroyed one of its own weather satellites in a test of its anti-satellite missile technology. Just thousands of bits of debris were created by this single you know, missile hitting a single satellite. It's not that hard to imagine a, a conflict in space that creates, this time not thousands, but even millions of bits of debris. It's, it really is a situation where at some point you know, th- there could be too much debris. And so right now it's, it's critical that more debris is not created. That, that's, that should be the number one concern. What can satellite builders do to minimize the chances in advance that their satellites won't wind up as space junk? So yeah, so there's a lot of things that satellite operators can do. I would say Planet Labs is one of the ones that that have been very conscientious about this. Most of their satellites, they're in low Earth orbit and they're designed so that when they're no longer useful, they fall down towards the Earth and then they burn up in the atmosphere. So they're so low to begin with that they basically are guaranteed to fall back into the atmosphere just because of friction or something? That's correct, yeah. So air resistance uh, slows down these, these satellites and then, yeah, and then they start falling. For satellites that are higher up, air resistance is so close to nothing that that won't work. And so basically they have two options. One of them is if there's a propulsion system on that satellite, they can move it down to a lower orbit and then pull the same maneuver. Or uh, if they're so high up, they can push the satellite up to a higher orbit. It's called a graveyard orbit. And so when you're that far from the Earth, the odds of a collision are basically negligible. But what about when unexpected things happen? Last month, SpaceX launched a mission to put 60 more of its small Starlink communication satellites in orbit. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. This is a recording from the company's webcast. And there is that live view. So you can see on your screen the satellites are slowly separating away from the second stage, and over the next few weeks they will distance themselves from each other and eventually use their onboard ion thrusters to make their way to their final orbit. There are now 360 of these satellites in orbit, out of a planned 12,000. But the most famous Starlink satellite is probably Starlink 44. Last year, as the Starlink satellite was changing orbit, a much larger European Space Agency weather satellite had to fire its thrusters to get out of the way. Maybe the two craft would never have hit, but maybe they would have. And as we prepare for a world with tens of thousands of satellites in the sky, there needs to be a plan for how to prevent accidents. It's a very interesting area of law, and if you Mm -hmm. like space law or you like international law, this is going to be a big topic. Greg Weiler founded telecommunications company OneWeb. The company actually went bankrupt just last month, an economic casualty of the coronavirus pandemic. But until then, it had plans to launch 2,000 of its own satellites. And last fall, at our MTech conference, Weiler talked to our executive editor, Michael Riley, about his experiences trying to build a safe mega-constellation, even in the absence of regulation. We're going to listen for several minutes, because in this conversation, Weiler and Riley covered several questions that show how tricky space law is. The first, who's liable 
if one satellite hits another. Whoever is the launching state mm. takes responsibility for any damages they cause. Mm. Okay. So in most countries, if you launch, you're required to take out insurance against damage you might cause. So if a satellite hits something else, then you're liable and the state's liable because right. usually the company's not going to be able to pay for the damage because the damage, the magnitude of the damage can be much larger than any company. Sure. I mean, maybe Amazon and maybe not even Amazon. If you think about the potential ongoing damages of taking out the space station or something like that. Weiler went on to explain that because space is essentially unregulated, OneWeb designed its satellite constellation to be what he called naturally safe. Like literally, there's no one at the wheel, right? There's nobody. The FCC put out an NPRM, Nose Proposed Rulemaking on Space Debris, uh -huh. didn't do anything about it. Commerce says, we're going to take control, but they don't have the regulatory authority to take control. Yeah. FAA hasn't said anything. They said, no, that's above this little sure. this line. It's not us. So what we did at OneWeb was right in the beginning, I put together a team to deal with space debris. Mm -hmm. And we designed our constellation so it was naturally safe. What I mean by naturally safe is that as the satellites are orbiting, if they all break, they don't hit each other. Mm. It's a very key piece of it. Now, if you design a constellation that is not naturally safe, mm -hmm. it means you require active maneuvers to not hit each other. Even though there's no FAA for space, Weiler told Riley that there are actually a lot of useful parallels with air traffic control in the aviation world that could be applied to managing collision avoidance in space. It's just nobody's applying them. I'm a pilot, so I'm used to flying and you have levels that you fly and stuff. And over time, the spacing, the vertical spacing has gotten narrower and narrower. Mm. So you're trying to get better vertical spacing, closer and closer. But you have to have knowledge of where you are. You have to have somebody at the controls. Now, you could say, I'm going to use it all automated and do it in an AI world. Mm. I'm not prepared to do that in a plane. And I'm certainly not prepared to do that in satellites. Because in AI, I might be able to use AI to figure out my own stuff. Mm -hmm. But now I've got all these other people. And how do their AI systems work with my AI system since there's no rule set? What if we both turn right or left or yeah. one turns right, one turns left, or one yeah. goes both go down? Or... So there is no short-term, five-year term, way to automate collision avoidance. Okay. You can automate collision discussions. You can automate understanding of it. But lights out, collision avoidance, hmm. that's not even on the table as a safe possibility in the next five years. Okay. So what do we need to do? I'm curious about who becomes a traffic cop like, and what does the traffic cop look like when we're not just talking about, say, American airspace, we're talking about... So what I had hoped would happen, Earth orbit. hoping that the U.S. would take a forward-looking stance on this. Mm -hmm. And senators were writing into the FCC and saying, you should do something, and a lot of people started talking about this. Mm -hmm. The U.S. should craft a rule, a set of rules, and they should then say to the world, since we have a lot of satellites, we're going to force this on our satellite systems, mm -hmm. and we're going to ask you to adopt these rules and create an international agreement on it didn't happen. And they have in a whole set of rules, you can go look it up on the website, but mm. they haven't acted on it. Mm -hmm. But the FCC is not in charge of space. They're sort of in charge of licensing for spectrum rights to use space, which is kind of a gate, mm. right? Yep. But you could launch a satellite that doesn't use FCC spectrum. But even if satellite companies and governments do eventually get a handle on all this, science writer Ramin Skiba says there's another problem with satellite megaconstellations. The more satellites there are in low Earth orbit, the more often they get in the way of ground-based telescopes peering at the night sky. Quite a few astronomers are upset about megaconstellations because of how they affect their observations. I mean, they're bright enough and they're, they're big enough that they can affect a decent number of images. And so it's a real challenge for astronomers. And it's not just 
the technical challenge. I think it's also, it's the principle of it. They're not too happy about just the possibility of satellite constellations, you know, messing with their science. We invited SpaceX to participate in this podcast, and they declined. But the company has said that it's going to great lengths to make sure its satellites don't become space debris. Starlink satellites can maneuver out of the way when there's a detectable risk of a collision. And in fact, the company said it would have moved Starlink 44 out of the way of the European Space Agency satellite last September, except there was a bug in its paging system that prevented the Starlink operators from seeing the ESA's warnings. In addition, the company says aging Starlink satellites will use their onboard propulsion systems to deorbit before they die. Even if the propulsion fails, the satellites are in such a low orbit that they'd fall back to Earth within one to five years anyway. And on the question of how to keep the satellites from interfering with ground-based astronomy, here's what the SpaceX announcer had to say during the webcast of that March 18th Starlink launch that you heard earlier. One quick update, as many of you know, we've been running a number of tests to reduce the reflectivity of these Starlink satellites on their way to orbit. The first of these tests involve using paint to darken portions of the satellite. Preliminary results show a notable reduction, but we have a couple other ideas that we think could reduce the reflectivity even further. The most promising being a sunshade that would operate in the same way as a patio umbrella or a sun visor, but for the satellite. The sunshade option is slated for a future Starlink launch, and all of these efforts are ongoing and will continue to report results back as we receive them. So, Ramin, it feels like the larger issue here is that we just don't have a set of rules to govern space commercialization or space development. Do you think we're getting any closer to having some kind of international agreement or some way of operating that will minimize the harms and maximize the benefits? That's a good question. I think both at the national level and international level, agencies and, and institutions need to catch up. So, so developments are happening a lot faster than laws are to regulate them. There is a push to develop le legislation for this, but, but I, I think it will take a few years before anything has a chance of passing. And at an international level, the, the United Nations does have a group that is working on these issues as well. but. To some extent, my impression, um, and I could be wrong, but my impression is that international groups are sort of following the U.S.'s lead, and the U.S. hasn't had a whole lot of leadership on this. There's going to be you know, pressure on, on companies to pay more attention to these issues, but that pressure may come more from public pressure than, than from political pressure. So I think it was more like news stories and people complaining about SpaceX messing up their night sky that affected SpaceX. It's not, not like uh, a Congress member or, or someone from the Trump administration called up uh, Elon Musk and said, hey, you, you got to work on this. A lot of environmentalists speak about the tragedy of the commons, which goes back to an idea from philosopher Garrett Hardin in the 1960s. And I think specifically he was using a metaphor about cattle grazing like on a common parcel of land. And if everybody used up their allotted portion of the land by putting more and more cattle out there, eventually there'd be no more grass. And so I wonder whether you think there's some danger that the same situation will occur in space. We'll have a tragedy of the commons where unregulated access ends up making low Earth orbit basically unusable for everybody. Right. I think tragedy of the commons is a good analogy for this situation. There's limited space. Space should be for everybody. You know, the night sky should be for everybody. But yeah, if, if everybody does whatever they want with the night sky, then at some point you're, you're going to have satellite collisions that make low Earth orbit 
basically unusable, and then you're, you might roll the dice trying to launch through it and go to a higher orbit or something like that. If you end up with that uh, a cascading effect of collisions, it could take many billions of dollars and many decades, seriously, and, until, until low-Earth orbit is usable again. It's a situation that really should be avoided at all costs, and right now it is kind of the, the Wild West up there. That's it for this edition of Deep Tech. This is a podcast we're making exclusively for MIT Technology Review subscribers. To help bring alive some of the people and ideas, you'll find in the pages of our website and our print magazine. But the first four episodes cover our annual 10 Breakthrough Technologies issue, and we're making those episodes free for everyone. Deep Tech is written and produced by me and edited by Michael Riley and Jennifer Strong. Our theme is by Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. Special thanks this week to Ramin Skiba, Margot Wool, and Greg Weiler. I'm Wade Rausch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you back here for our next episode in late April. <laughs>